join us live as we celebrate the fall feast, beginning with the Feast of Trumpets on September the 17th at 3 p.m. Then the Day of Atonement on September the 26th at 3 p.m. The beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, October the 1st at 3 p.m. And the closing of Feast of Tabernacles, October the 8th at 3 p.m. We look forward to you joining us. Shalom. Shalom, shalom, shabbat shalom. Welcome everyone to the Science of the Covenant podcast. And I am Boyce Washington and on the other side of me is the pastor Richard Washington. And we just want to reaffirm tomorrow, Feast of Trumpets, September the 17th at 3 p.m. We look for you to join us. Then the week after that Tuesday, the Day of Atonement, where we afflict our souls, September the 26th, we will be on again at 3 p.m. So we're asking that you also join us then. Then coming up in the 1st of October, Feast of Tabernacles, we begin October the 1st at 3 p.m. And then we will wrap up the Feast of Tabernacles October the 8th at 3 p.m. Mark your calendars. Make sure you join us. You don't want to miss it. And as always, if you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at the science of the covenant at gmail.com. And if you, you can also, if we are live, you can also put a message in the comments or in the chat, and we will be happy to get to your questions and comments on air. If you've been tuning in, you've known that the pastor has been doing a series dealing with the world kingdoms. Was there a world here before Yah created this world in Adam and Eve? And if it was, what happened to that world? And these are some of the questions that the pastor looks to answer. So if you haven't listened to any of the podcasts before dealing with this, we suggest we have nine series so far. We suggest you go watch the other eight to get caught up in what's going on. And with that, I'm going to turn it over to the pastor. All right. Thank you, boss. What we want to do is continue where we are and with the anticipation of looking forward to tomorrow that we deal with young to rule the blowing of the trumpets. And we want to be able to celebrate that as Elohim has given us this particular day, and as we do so, we can be following in the feast days that he has ascribed to his people. So we look forward to that day tomorrow at 3 p.m. that we may congregate again. So we want to continue with our series where we left off, and last week we were trying to point out that the transgressional trail that started in Eden was not the initial time in which sin got started. So we are trying to trace 
and look at who influenced the serpent to give to Eve that which he gave to her. And as we look at that, we find that the serpent was not the first one to introduce evil in, uh, in the universe. And as we trace that trail, we'll come to the one who did. So we left off last week with the transgressional trail and we brought it all the way up to a certain point and we want to start with that point today. So just as we get started, let us have a word of prayer. Our loving Father, we thank you for the blessings that you have given us this day thus far. And as we have come aside to rest from the chores and the various hardships and difficulties and the joys and the delights that we've had this week and now as we pause in a sanctuary of time on the Shabbat to be able to receive a refreshing and a renewal and a revitalization in such a way that it may renew us as we come away from our common ordinary chores. And as we continue to pursue the subject that we are pursuing, that you would give us clear understanding of what transpired on this earth before the coming of Adam and Eve. So bless, keep, guide, and direct each one of us in this study. In Yeshua's name, we do ask it, and for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen and amen. Amen. Okay, we want to get started, and our first text that we want to pursue is found in the 14th chapter of the book of Isaiah, and we want to read a few verses and then comment on those particular verses. That's Isaiah chapter 14, and in the 14th chapter, we want to consider verses 12 down through 17, Isaiah chapter 14, starting with verse 12 through 17, and it reads, How art thou fallen from heaven, O Lucifer, son of the morning? How art thou cut down to the ground, which did weaken the nations? For thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of Elohim. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will descend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the most high. Yet thou shalt be brought down to hell to the sides of the pit that they, they that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, is this the man that made the earth to, to tremble, that did shake the kingdoms, that made the worlds as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof, that opened it, not the house of the prisoners? So in this passage, there are a number of significant facts that we want to point out about the one who was behind the serpent. Isaiah speaks about Lucifer. He calls him <clears throat> Lucifer, which is a Latin word that means a light bearer. However, what we notice about Lucifer is that Isaiah raises the question to how he had fallen from heaven. So apparently, if he had fallen from heaven, it is quite obvious that he was in heaven. Not only does this say, Lucifer, who is called the son of the morning, has fallen from heaven, 
but he was cut down to the ground. Now, what ground was it that he was cut down on? Apparently, it was this earth, this earthly ground upon which we walk upon today. So when we talk about, uh, so when we look at Isaiah uh, chapter 14 and verse 12, it, it points out to us that he was, it says, how art thou fallen from heaven, O thou Lucifer, son of the morning. So he's called son of the morning. He said, how art thou fallen to the ground, which did weakness the nations. Okay, so what what we what we're looking at, uh, however, in uh, Isaiah fourteen twelve, it speaks about Lucifer weakening the nations. Now, who are these nations which he weakened? Are these nations found upon the earth? We know that in this chapter, Isaiah speaks about the fall of Babylon. Okay. So when we look at the beginning of the chapter, he's actually talking about the fall of Babylon. So now, uh, so at the fall of the Babylonian kingdom, which is in comparison to the fall of Lucifer. So in other words, he's talking about two falls here at one time. He's talking about the fall of Babylon, and he's equating that with also the fall of Lucifer. So we may not be able to synchronize Lucifer's fall from heaven with the same time period which the king of Babylon fell. However, we do have support in understanding that the nations were weakened by the influence of the spirit of Lucifer. In verse 13, uh, there are some more light shed on Lucifer. Now let's read verse 13 again. And here it says in verse 13 of the 14th chapter of Isaiah, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of El. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. Okay, so when we, when we read that, it's talking about some of the intentions that Lucifer had. So when we look at the fall of Babylon and the fall of Lucifer, there are some parallels uh, that they had. So when we uh, say that Lucifer had, had fallen and then we talk about the Babylonian nation, we must understand that's talking about here on earth because it was a Babylonian nation that was upon this earth that he's comparing the fall of Lucifer with. For it says uh, that Lucifer said in his heart, I will ascend into heaven and I will exalt my throne above the stars of Elohim. I will sit also upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. And it goes on to say in the following verse, I will ascend above the height of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. Here in this passage of Scripture, we want to observe 
some things about Lucifer's intentions. So in Isaiah 14, 13, the Bible says, he said in his heart, okay, this is something that he, he was saying in his heart. What did he say? Well, in his heart, he said, I will ascend into heaven. Here, Lucifer is saying, I will ascend into heaven. Now, we have already read that he was fallen from heaven. Now he is saying, in his mind, he will ascend into heaven. Isn't it ironical that as intelligent as he was, that after falling from heaven, that he would regain entrance into heaven? Yes, this was his intent to regain heaven. Moreover, he stated that he would exalt his throne above the stars of Elohim. Now let's probe into this, let's probe into his intentions a lot deeper than just the surface of what he is articulating. For the mere fact that Lucifer had a throne, okay, he said, I will exalt my throne. Now for the mere fact that he had a throne suggests very strongly that he was not satisfied with his throne being where it was. Where was it? Apparently, it was here on earth. And to have a throne on earth for him also meant that he was some type of ruler. Usually a person who sits on a, on a throne is a ruler. When he says that he wanted to exalt his throne, this is evidence that he had a kingdom of some kind. So when we think about somebody sitting on a throne, we have to think about at least two things. Number one, if you're sitting on a throne, you're a ruler. And number two, if you're sitting on a throne, if you're a ruler, who are you ruling over? You're ruling over a kingdom. So he was a ruler and he had a kingdom. Now, if in Babylon and also the kings of the nations Okay, let's look at these kings of the nations in Isaiah chapter 14, and we want to look at verses uh, 4 and 9. Isaiah chapter 14, we want to look at verses 4 first and then 9. Now, the Bible says here in Isaiah chapter 14, verse 4, that thou shalt take up the proverb against the king of Babylon and say, how hath the oppressor ceased and the golden city ceased? Okay. So they took up a proverb about Babylon and they said this 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 uh, city has ceased. Okay, now let us look at verse nine. Verse nine tells us, Hell from beneath is moved for thee to meet thee at thy coming. It stirreth up the dead for thee, even all the chief ones of the earth. It has raised up from their thrones all the kings of the nations. Okay, so we're talking about all the kings of the nations. And there's a stirring about of these kings. Now, there may be some clues as to where Lucifer's kingdom is located. We know that Babylon 
is an earthly city for the mere fact that it didn't come into existence until Nimrod, the grandson of Nor, created the city. So let us turn to Genesis chapter 10. And in Genesis 10, we want to look at a few verses there. Genesis 10. And we want to start with verse number one. Genesis 10, 1 says, Now these are the generations of the sons of Noah, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and unto them were born, and unto them were sons born after the flood. Okay. All right, so we have the sons of Noah. Now let us look at verse 6 of the same chapter 10 of Genesis. And it says, and the name and the and the and the sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, and Foot, and Canaan, and Canaan. Okay, so Ham had <clears throat> Ham had four sons: Cush, Mizraim, Foot, and Canaan. All right. Now let's look at verse eight of the tenth chapter. Verse eight says, and Cush begat Nimrod, he, beca he began to be a mighty one in the earth. Okay. All right. Now, if you understand that it was Nimrod, <clears throat> according to the, to, to the scriptures, that built Babylon, because in verse 10 it says, and the beginning of the kingdom, and the beginning of his kingdom, talking about Nimrod, the beginning of his kingdom was Babel, and Babel is the same word for Babylon. So we know that Babel and Babylon are the same word, but it was established on his earth by Nimrod. So we know for a fact that Nimrod kingdom was on earth. Okay. So if Lucifer was dealing with the kings of the earth, then he had to be here on earth too. However, the question is, how do we synchronize the fall of Babylon, which is a part of an earthly kingdom, with the fall of Lucifer from a heavenly kingdom? You know, how, 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 do, how do we put that in perspective? Okay. All right. Now, when we, when we read in uh, Isaiah chapter 14, and we consider, let's look at verses 13 and 14. 13 to 14 says, for, for thou hast said in thine heart, I will ascend into heaven. I will exalt my throne above the stars of El. I will sit upon the mount of the congregation in the sides of the north. I will, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High or like El Elyon. Okay, so what are these verses uh, letting us know. So it, it was letting us know that they are talking about both what's happening on earth as well as what's happening in heaven. Now, we are told that Lucifer made the earth tremble. Okay. Now, let us look at Isaiah chapter 14, verse 16. Now, here's what it says. It says, they that see thee shall narrowly look upon thee and consider thee, saying, Is this the man 
that made the earth to tremble. Okay, he made the earth to tremble. So it again is letting us know his kingdom must be here on earth. That did shake the kingdoms. Okay, so the Bible is saying he made the earth to tremble and he shook the kingdoms. Okay, so it sounds like Lucifer is doing a lot of havoc and a lot of uh, destruction here on, on this earth. So he looked like he's well familiar with this earth. So this sounds a lot like he was reigning on the earth. His reign here was to deal with those kings. In verse 17, all right, let's read verse 17 of uh, Isaiah chapter 14. That made the world as a wilderness. Mm. He said he made this world as a wilderness and destroyed the cities thereof that opened it, not the house of his prisoners. Now, when we look at that, he said he made this world a wilderness. Mm. All right. If he made this world a wilderness, and then when we look at Genesis chapter uh, 1 and verse 2, it says that the earth was without form and void. That sounds a lot like, that sounds a lot like something that Lucifer did in making this world a wilderness. So when Elohim came to put Adam and Eve on it, he recreated this, this, this world that was down here. That's what it sounds like, because the Bible says that made the world a wilderness. When did the world become a wilderness? Because when Elohim started, that's, that's the way this world looked, like a wilderness. And then he made it a beautiful place, and then he put Adam and Eve here. So is Isaiah saying that even before Adam and Eve got here, this world was made into a, a wilderness? So therefore, in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 2, is this the reason why the Bible says that the world, that the spirit of Elohim moved upon the face of the waters? of the deep, he said that it was about this world, this earth was without form and void, and darkness was upon the face of the deep, and the spirit of Elohim moved upon the waters? Was it because this world was in a chaotic state, of which Lucifer had already made it in, in a wilderness? Could that be? Okay, let us consider, con continue to pursue this. Uh, <clears throat> Now, consequently, when it speaks of Lucifer being brought down to hell, to the sides of the pit, hell and the sides of the pit are located here on earth. Is it true that Lucifer weakened the nations of this world by the spirit of his influence? Okay. Now, but before these earthly kingdoms come upon the stage of this earth, no doubt, he was reigning upon it by the mere fact that the scriptures state that he had a throne and it was located on earth and he wanted it to be higher than what it was. And he wanted it to be where Elohim's throne was in heaven. So he was not satisfied with having an earthly throne. He wanted a heavenly throne, and he wanted to take over the throne in heaven. So let us look at some further evidence of Lucifer's kingdom on earth. 
we will go to the book of Ezekiel. Okay, we want to go to the book of Ezekiel. And in the book of Ezekiel, we want to turn to Ezekiel chapter 28. Let us go to Ezekiel chapter 28. Okay. <clears throat> in this, <clears throat> in Ezekiel chapter 28, we want to look at verses 14 and 12. Verses 14 and 12. Okay, we want to start with verse 14 first, Ezekiel 14, uh, chapter 28. We want to start with 14, and then we're going to back up. Now, in the, 14, in the 14th verse of the 28th chapter of, of uh, Ezekiel, it says, Thou art the anointed cherub that covereth, and I have set thee so. Thou wast upon the holy mountain of Elohim. Thou hast walked up and down in the midst of the stones of fire. Okay. All right. Let's look at that. He says, thou has been the anointed cherub. So in this passage, in Ezekiel, it speaks about a covering cherub, and the fall of this cherub is compared to the fall of the king of Tyrus. Okay. Okay. Now, we want to, we, we want to look at Ezekiel. Uh, this time we want to look at verse 12. Ezekiel 28, 12. We looked at 14. I want to look at 12. The Bible says, Son of man, take up a lamentation upon the king of Tyrus and say unto him, Thus said Adonai Yahuwah, thou sealest up the sum full of wisdom and perfect in beauty. Okay, so now we are dealing with another king, just like Isaiah dealt with the king of Babylon. Now we are dealing with the prince or the king of Tyrus. Okay, that's what we're dealing with. He said, now, what we want to do is to examine this passage in Ezekiel, in Ezekiel to see if we can discover more evidence that Satan's kingdom was once upon this earth. In Ezekiel, 20, in Ezekiel 28, we see the prince of Tyrus and Lucifer, who is a covering cherub, both the prince of Tyrus and the covering cherub are lifted up with pride, okay? Because this is what we are dealing with. So when we look at Ezekiel chapter 28, and let's notice verse number one. Ezekiel 28.1 says, the word of Yahuwah came again unto me, saying, okay, son of man, verse 2, son of man, say unto the prince of Tyrus, thus saith Adonai Yahuwah, because thine heart was lifted up, and thou hast said, I am a Elohim, and I am an Elohim. I sit in the sea of Elohim, in the midst of the seas, yet thou art a man and not Elohim. Thou, that, though thou sit thine heart as the heart of Elohim. Okay. So he's talking about the prince or the king of Tyrus that the Bible said he got lifted up. He was lifted up because of his position, his wealth, and how, and his beauty. 
Okay, now let us look in Ezekiel chapter 28, and this time we want to look at verse 17, okay? And the Bible says in verse 17 of the 28th chapter of Ezekiel, Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. Thou hast corrupted thy wisdom. By reason of thy brightness, I will cast thee to the ground, and I will lay thee before kings that they may behold thee. Now, if we look at verses 2 and 17 in Ezekiel chapter 28, both of them were, were lifted up. The king on earth was lifted up, and Lucifer, the king, was, well, he was not actually a king, but he was a ruler. He was also lifted up. So again, we are tackling the same situation with Lucifer and the king of Babylon as with the covering cherub with the prince of Tyrus. Now, here we find in both scenarios of Isaiah speaking about Lucifer in comparison to the king of Babylon, and Ezekiel is talking about the covering cherub in comparison to the prince of Tyrus. So here we have an angelic king being compared to a human king, okay? So when we look at, let's turn back to Isaiah, uh, Isaiah chapter uh, uh, 14 and verse 4. Here it says, Thou, that thou shalt take up a proverb against the king of Babylon, okay? So Isaiah is talking about the king of Babylon, and then in Ezekiel uh, 28.2, it talks about the prince of Tyrus. Okay? So what, what we're dealing with, we, uh, uh, we, we are dealing with these two kings, the king of Babylon and the king of Tyrus. And in both cases, we have Lucifer represented with the kingdom of Babylon, and we have the covering chair as represented to the kingdom of Tyrus. So we asked the question, how is it that both Isaiah and Ezekiel write under inspiration about an angelic ruler and a human ruler with the same stroke of the pen at the same time? How can you be writing about two kingdoms at the same time? How do we synchronize the angelic rulership with the human rulership? reigning simultaneously. At this juxtaposition, what we want to see is why is it that the that an angelic that, that why is it that an angel and a human are spoken of as having similar evil traits are portrayed together. In this part of our teachings, we want to consider what it is about uniting angels and human rulership together. We will title this next section, The Angelical and the Anthropological Rulership. Now, the angelical and, anthropolog and anthropological rulership is, the angelical deals with the angels and the anthropological deal with man. So we're seeing how angels and man are ruling. The initial question which concerns us at this juxtaposition is, why is it that Isaiah and Jeremiah comparing an angelic rulership with a human rulership? So what we are 
actually doing is comparing angels' rulership with human rulership. In the comparison, what we are associating particularly in the cases of which Isaiah and Ezekiel respectively point out to us as it relates to how human rulers have taken on evil attributes of evil angels, as did Adam and Eve, who followed in the trail of the serpent, who was influenced by the devil. How do we know that the devil influenced the serpent? So let us read in the book of Revelation concerning why it was that the use that, that the serpent deceived Eve. So we want to look at that in the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation concerning who it was that used the serpent to deceive the first king and queen of the human family. So we want to turn to the book of Revelation. And in the book of Revelation, we want to look at chapter 12. I want to do uh, verses 7 through 12. Book of Revelation. And then the 12th chapter of Revelation. We want to look at verses 7 through 12. I want to find out who was behind that serpent and how do we know that it was. Okay, now here we read in the 12th chapter, starting with verse 7 down through 12, it says, It said, And there was war in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon fought against his angels and prevailed not. Neither was there place found any more in heaven. And the great dragon was cast out, that old serpent called the devil and Satan, which deceiveth the whole world. He was cast out into the earth, and his angels were cast out with him. And I heard a loud voice saying in heaven, Now is salvation and strength and the kingdom of Elohim and the power of his Messiah. For the accuser of the brothers of the brethren is cast down, which accused them before our Elohim day and night. And they overcame him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. And they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, O, therefore rejoice, ye heavens, and ye that dwell in them. Woe to the inhabitants of the earth and of the sea. For the devil is come down unto you, having great wrath, because he knoweth that he hath a short time to reign. In this passage, we are told who influenced the serpent to do what he did. We are told that after the war in heaven between Michael, Michael's angels and the dragon's angels, that the dragon and his angels were cast out of heaven. In this scenario, there are two things we want to point out. First, the first thing we want to consider is who is the dragon? Now, according to Revelation chapter 12, verse 9, it says the dragon is called by a number of names. He is called the old serpent, called the devil, and Satan. Now, if we notice the list of names which are given to the dragon, it starts with the old serpent. So why would it start, why would the serpent 
be a part of the dragon's name? Could it be that when the serpent in the Garden of Eden partnered with Satan to deceive Eve, they bonded together, and in doing so, the devil took on the serpent's name. He used the serpent, but now in the book of Revelation, it is identified the dragon or the devil with the serpent because that's what we use. Now, the second thing that we want to notice is where the devil was cast according to the passage he was, uh, uh, where, where did they cast the devil when they cast him out of heaven? The Bible says that they cast him to the earth. Revelation 9 and 12 said he was cast to this earth. Now, if he was cast to this earth, then this raises some questions. Was Adam and Eve created yet? When he was created, why was he cast to this earth? So if he had war in heaven, why would he be cast to this earth? I would think he'd be cast here because that's where he was. That's where his throne was. Initially, that's where he was. Why was he cast to this earth? Was well, simply because he had already had some ownership down here. Was he here prior to Elohim, Elohim creating this world for Adam and Eve? Now, that's the question that we had to look at. When he was cast out of heaven, was this earth created yet? Even though he identifies them with the kingdom of Tyrus and the kingdom of Babylon, were they those kings later on that he continued to influence after he had taken over this earth from Adam and Eve? Or was he ruling other kingdoms even before Adam and Eve and Babylon and Tyrus came upon this earth? So this is what we want to do next week. We want to see, uh, did this battle in heaven occur before Adam was created or after Adam was created. Our loving Father, as we continue to try to trace down what was going on on this earth, because we see certain evidence that something was happening on this earth even before Adam and Eve got here. So give us clear understanding that we may be able to discern what was going on. And as a result, it may help us in our, play, in, in, in our path to the road that leads to the kingdom of Elohim. So continue to bless me and my listeners, and most of all, bless our fellowship together. In Yeshua's name, we do ask it, and for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. Uh, I just wonder, too, have you uh, looked or read, like, what you're studying now um, with the Book of Enoch mm-hmm. and all? Mm-hmm. And and uh, was there anything in Enoch that kind of coincides with what you're giving? Mm-hmm. Yeah, they got a, quite a bit, yeah. Oh. A whole lot. Wow. I'd need to go and um, read through Enoch again. And, uh, because mm-hmm. it seems like a lot of what you're saying tied in because it seems like Enoch talks about uh, what happened prior to this world being made mm-hmm. and everything. Yeah, well, see... Uh, I haven't gone to the book of Enoch because I don't think the average person has really studied those books. Mm-hmm. And then on top of that, there's enough there's enough in King James. Mm-hmm. There's enough in King James version to deal with it without the book of Enoch. Mm-hmm. 
But with the Book of Enoch, you just have more weight. That's all it is. Mm. But, you know, um, in my opinion, I think Enoch was in Scripture from my understanding and some of my research and that it was taken out. And also some of the prophets also had spoken of, uh, well, not prophets, but I think Paul and some other ones have spoken of the Book of Enoch also. And that's true. Uh, and they can be quoted word for word uh, from the Book of Enoch. You're, you, you're absolutely correct. Uh-huh. But a lot of people that I talk to, they are not familiar with that. I may be familiar with it, and I might sound intelligent. But if they're not on the same page that I'm on, I try to deal with the literature that they have. Uh-huh. And since the literature that they have can prove what I'm saying without that, I just go with that. Okay. But this is not to exclude it. But if I meet people who have studied Enoch, uh-huh. then we can go from there. But I can't take the people any further than what they may know. And I don't want to get on ground that is absolutely foreign to them uh-huh. when I can show them from their own scripture of what's going on here. But but even though it may be foreign, because I mean, a lot of subjects, you know, when we in school uh, is foreign until someone brings it to our attention. Uh, is it not possible, though? you can coincide, you know, regular King James as well as a little bit of Enoch. You know, I'm just asking. Well, the Bible did that already. Okay. Just for the mere fact that when you look in the book of Jude and the Jude talks about Enoch, uh-huh. it's obvious that, that that's what they use. Okay. The Bible already did that. It's just that what I'm saying is I'm just not going to the book of Enoch. They uh-huh. quoted from Enoch. But I'm just not going there because I choose not to. But like I said, if there are people who know about it, then I would deal with it from that aspect. But at the same time, I do recognize that it probably was a part of the Bible, but they they took it away. And for for centuries and upon centuries, Uh that when they had taken away that people have not become familiar with it, it is still unfamiliar, even though it was a part of the Bible. But when we become familiar with what just the Bible says, and it quotes them, uh-huh. then no doubt at a point, I will transition into that literature. Okay. But I don't feel that I'm there yet. Okay. And if a person feels that they're there, hey, you can look on the internet and uh, other places, and there are people who quote it, and just like they do the King James, so you're still open to it even though I'm not doing it. Um, was Lucifer more beautiful than the other angels out of all? Well, you know, the, the Bible didn't really compare him as most beautiful, but, uh-huh. uh, well, let's go to the word. Here's what the Bible says about him. Uh, let's turn to uh, back. Matter of fact, we can turn back to the same text that we was using in our study today. Let's turn to Ezekiel 28. Okay, Ezekiel 28. All right, uh, let's see. All right, now here in the book of Ezekiel 28, the Bible says, let me see. Uh, let me see how. Let me see. Let's see. Uh, Okay, let, let's turn to Ezekiel 28, and we're going to start uh, with verse 
verse 13, the Bible says, Thou hast been in Eden, the garden of Elohim. Every precious stone was thy covering, the sardius, the topaz, the diamond, the burly, the onyx, the jasper, the sapphire, the emerald, and the carbuncle, and gold. The workmanship of thy tabrets and of thy pipes was prepared in thee in the day that thou was created. Okay, so it's describing how he looked and his appearance and what he and and and, and how he was embellished. Mm -hmm. he, he was he was indeed a most beautiful angel, but I believe all of his angels were beautiful, but he was more beautiful in the sense of the way he was constructed mm -hmm. and the way that his uh uh his throat was made with tabrets and the way he could sing and all of that, he was very superior. And then it, it, it says in verse 15 of the same 28th chapter of, of, of Ezekiel, he said, thou was perfect in the ways from thy day that thou was created. Wait a minute, wait. wait no, that's not what I want. Let me see, is that one? Uh, let me see. Uh, oh, well, let me see. Okay, well, I want the verses. Let me see. I think 17. Okay. Okay, and verse 17 says, Thine heart was lifted up because of thy beauty. So he was beautiful. Mm -hmm. And thou was corrupted with thy wisdom by reason of thy brightness. So he was intelligent, but it's corrupted him. And, and, and so what we're looking at, uh, he was a most beautiful angel, but a lot of times beauty it, it's not always aligned with embellishment and and, and, and things of that sort. Uh -huh. So 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 I'm under the I'm under the belief that he was made different. But the other angels were beautiful, but at the same time, he was made and constructed in such a way that uh, the other angels they they were not. I don't I, I haven't heard of a a cherub or a seraphim or opening you know, as having these type of uh, embellishments in their creation, okay? So I would say, yeah, he was a most beautiful angel, and I would say he per perhaps stood out among all of the angels, but I think all of the angels were beautiful, but he was just exceptional in the way that he was constructed and made. Um, also, uh, do you think Satan was angry with Yah? When he, if he came and had inhabited this world and Yah came and created and put Adam and he, Eve here to rule this world, do you think that was uh, anger there? Yeah, I, th I, th I think he was because I think he was, he, I think it was two, two things going on. And probably I might get deal with some of this next week. Uh -huh. I think it was two things. Number one was, I think he thought he was so brilliant that he could be a, he could be in the councils of Elohim uh, with the father and the son to make man. He wanted to be in that council. And, El and El Elohim and his son, they were both uh, God or Elohim. He wasn't. He was a created angel. Uh -huh. And they told him he couldn't be in that council, number one. And the second thing is, is that he probably felt that if this was his earth, then... Why are you giving my earth to somebody else? Uh, yeah. Okay. Now, this is my thinking. I mean, it's innocent thinking. And so if you're going to give it to somebody else, then my number one thing is, is to try to take it back from them. 
Okay, so this is why when he made a covenant, when he did make Adam and Eve, he let them know that this tree, you don't eat of it. Yeah. And he let them know that there was somebody on the loose that was going to try to get you to eat of it. And Adam well understood that. But Satan's thing was, if I can't help make man, I'm going to destroy man. Mm. Okay, so... Mm -hmm. uh, he made, it, he made it a target. He made it a target to the first Adam, and they failed the test. Mm -hmm. And then when he got to the second Adam, Yeshua, the Bible says he met Yeshua in the wilderness. He said, if you fall down and worship me, I'll give, I'll give you these, these worlds or these, uh, these kingdoms. He mm -hmm. said, if you worship me, I'll give you these kingdoms. Now, how can he offer him some kingdoms when Elohim made the world? That is because at one time, he was a king down here, and now he's telling Elohim that now I got it back from Adam, and if you worship me, Yeshua, then I'll let you be over these empires. But he, but Elohim uh, let him know that he was not going to bow down and worship him for 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 his kingdom. So he was offering him, no doubt, something that he once had. Mm. Okay. All right, uh, with that, we will transition to our next segment. Mm -hmm. Up next is Let's Talk About That. And let's talk about it this week. I want to talk about uh, Colossians 2.16. Um, because a lot of times when you meet, especially with Sunday worshipers, uh, they pose this argument that you can eat anything. You can't be criticized on what you believe uh, because they believe that the Sabbath and a lot of the commandments have been done away with. So I want to ask the pastor some questions regarding this. So if you have your Bibles, uh, if you can turn or just look at the screen, uh, we're going to look at Colossians 2.16. And it reads, let no man therefore judge you in meat or drink or in the respect of a feast day or of a new moon or of Shabbats. So, Pastor, I want to ask you when a, a lot of I don't know if you heard this, but a, a lot of uh, Sunday worshipers quote this to back up uh, their reason for keeping Sunday and being able to eat pork and the different unclean meats and everything. And all, and um, are they valid with this verse? Uh, well, no, they they're not valid in the sense that they are using this verse to justify eating, and and, and uh, keeping certain holy days or what you call holidays, uh -huh. and of new moons and of Sabbath days. Uh, they're not justified in eating anything. Uh -huh. And the question that we may, we had to look at is, what is Paul saying and who is he talking to? Yeah. That's okay, right. now he's talking to, he's talking to the Colossians, uh -huh. the Colossians, believe, the believers in Colossae. See, Colossae was a place that new believers had been uh, birthed into the followers of the Messiah, 
And so what was happening is, if you understand who Paul is talking to and why he's just talking to her, uh-huh. and when he quotes this text in Colossians 2.16, he said, let no man therefore judge you, okay? Uh-huh. Now, you just want to look at that first before you get to the rest of the text. He said, let no man therefore judge you. So what is he saying? He is saying, let no man judge you. So mm. he's talking to the Colossian believers, and he's saying, when it comes to what you're doing and how you're worshiping, he said, don't let no man judge you. Mm. In other words, men, men were judging them mm-hmm. on what they were doing. And so what he is saying here, he said, let no man judge you. So if he's saying, let no man judge you, what is he what is he saying? Well, let's let's kind of get a get a background. Okay, let us go to let's go to uh uh verse uh let's see. Let us go to verse 18 of the same chapter to Colossians 2 18. It said, Let no man beguile you of your reward or the voluntary humility and the worshiping of angels. Okay. Uh-huh. So he said, let no man do what? Beguile you. Okay, now, it's a normal place he said, let no man. So what he's saying is, when you worship and do what you're doing, man can't judge you. Because uh-huh. you're doing it to Elohim, not, not to them. Uh-huh. Okay, so now let's get into the text and what, he, what he's saying, let no man therefore judge. What is man judging you on? He said, let no man judge you in me. In other words, the thing that you eat, he, he said, don't let man judge you. Uh-huh. Because you know what Elohim told you to eat and how to eat. You know that. But don't let man do that. Man man can't tell you that. He said, let no man judge you in meat or drink. Now, when you talk about meat and drink, a lot of times they have associated meat and drink with the sacrificial offering with the meat and the libation offerings. Uh-huh. See, the libations was the drink offerings, and he's, he's saying, uh, if they're going to judge you, don't let man judge you about what you eat and what you drink or what you sacrifice. That, uh-huh. That's not that's that's not man's business. That's Elohim's business. And then he turns around and says, they can't judge you on what you eat, nor in respect to holy days. Uh-huh. He said, they can't judge you according to your holy days. Man can't do that. Or of the new moon. Or of the Shabbat days. Mm. In other words, what is saying here, that if you look in the scripture, it talks about the the holy days. Uh Okay. What were the holy days? The holy days were, uh, you start with Passover, and then you got first fruits, and you got unleavened bread. That's in the spring of the year. In the summer, you had what they call Chevy Oath or Pentecost. And in the fall, you had the Feast of Trumpets, the Feast of Atonement, and you had the Feast of Tabernacles. Those were called the Holy Days. Mm-hmm. The Holy Day, okay? He said, or the, or the new moon. When did the new moon, moon come? The new moon came every month. But tomorrow we'll be celebrating the seventh month, which would be Yom Teruah, which the blowing of the trumpets, which starts the beginning of the seventh month. Uh-huh. Okay. So every month you got 12 months. So you had 12 new moons. 
or the Sabbath days. And they got S. And a lot of people say, well, the Sabbath days, since it's got S, that don't mean the Sabbath of the week. No, it does. You're just saying that the Sabbath days were every week. So what you have here is a is the holy days, which were the annual feast, and you had the new moon, which was the monthly feast, and you had the Sabbath days, which was a weekly feast. So he covers the week, the month, and and the year. That's what he's covering in there. And he says, in you doing that, let no man judge you. You can't judge me on my Sabbath. You can't judge me on my holy day. You can't judge me on my new moon. And you can't judge me on what I eat or drink. No man can do that. Uh-huh. He said, let nobody judge you on that. So you cannot use that to say you could eat anything. The text is not saying anything about you eating anything. It's saying, don't let man judge you on the things that you do. So when someone quotes that verse two to basically say, I can keep Christmas, that's still wrong? Well, see, the thing is, he, he, it's not only wrong once, but it's wrong twice. Uh-huh. It's wrong once because Elohim didn't give no Christmas Easter. It's nowhere in the Bible. You cannot find it in Holy Writ anywhere. Uh-huh. Okay, you can't find Christmas or Easter, Halloween, all this stuff. You can't find it in the scriptures anywhere. Uh-huh. And if anything that he wants you to do, it should be in the Torah, which is the first five books of Moses, which is Genesis, Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, and Deuteronomy. You can't find Christmas Easter in those. And when Yeshua came, he kept what was in the Torah, which was the annual festivals and also the weekly Sabbath. That's what he kept. Okay, so if 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 you can't find it in the Bible, that means that he don't want you to keep it. Mm. Okay, now, then the other thing is that you say that all of these days was done away with. Well, if they are already done away with, who gives you the prerogative to create holy days of your own? Yeah. So if you can create holy days of your own, then that means I can do the same thing. And if everybody do the same thing, then that means that I'm doing what I want to do, but not what Elohim wants to do because I done created my own days. So if you're saying that he did, do away with them. Well, let them be done away with. And if they're done away with, don't try to put anything in its place. Mm. But what they are doing, they are saying it's not only uh, done done away with, but it's all right to keep other days that they have created. Mm-hmm. So my Bible says don't add to his word and don't take away. Because if you add to it, he said, I'm going to take up. Uh, 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 he said, then I'm going to add to you the plagues of the book. And if you take away, then I'm going to take away from your portion out of uh, out of the book of life. So this text is not endorsing eating anything you want to eat. If Elohim gave a health law back then to them people that was good for them, why would you think he want to take it away from us today? If it was good for them, then it's good for us now. Okay. Uh wanna get to some of the questions we got e- we have uh emailed. Uh the first question, does Colossians two seventeen clarify that only the body of Mashiach is the one who should judge someone? Well, uh let me see. Let me read what it said. It said, which are a shell of things to come, but the body is of the Messiah. And you're saying, let me see. 
I, uh, I don't know if he said, he said, let no man judge you. Uh, but, 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 but we knew, but we do know this, not according to verse 17, he said, for these things, which are a shadow of things to come. In other words, he said in the future, uh, some things going to come, uh, but the body of the Messiah. Okay. Well, it, in a way it may endorse that they could make some judgment because they do have have the ability to do it because they are walking with Messiah. Mm -hmm. But I was also going to allude to other passages that the Apostle Paul had said, and he was saying that there were certain people in, in, I think it was in the Corinth church in Corinthians, that they were taking their brother to court. And Paul says, why would you take your brothers to court if they did something to you? Because cannot you judge, you know, judge these matters? Uh -huh. He said, for after all, once you're redeemed, you're not only going to judge mankind, but you're going to judge angels. So you have the ability to judge. So, yes, I would confer to the fact that if anybody going to judge you, even though they are men, but if there are people who outside of the, of the body of Yeshua going to try to judge you, he said, he said, you don't need to concern yourself with that. He said, but the body, they are able to judge themselves because they are in harmony with the teachings of the scripture. So they, they are more in a position to do that as men than men outside of the scriptures. So yes, I, I, I could see verse 17 confirming the fact that the body of the Messiah, which is the body of Yeshua, who follows him, they are in a position to judge these things, not people or men who are not in harmony with this. Okay. Uh, the next question we have, uh, the Euphrates River has dried up. Does this mean that Revelation 16.12 is being fulfilled? Uh, okay, let's see what you got. 16.12. Alright, let's read that text. Let me see. Okay, Revelation 16, 12 says, And the sixth angel poured out his vial upon the great river Euphrates, and the water thereof was dried up, that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared. Okay, so you're saying that Euphrates is drying up, and the kings of the are coming forth. So read that question again. Let me try to put it in perspective. Uh, the, the Euphrates River has dried up. Does this mean that Revelation 16.12 is being fulfilled? Okay. Since it's drying up, does it mean Revelation 16.12 uh, is being fulfilled? You know, that is, this prophecy here would take a lot more time to explain in detail than I have time for. But let's try to get some nuggets of truth on this. Now, when you look at Revelation 16, 12, you're dealing with two interpretations, okay? The first interpretation is literal. Is, is this literally, is this talking about literally the drying up of the Euphrates? And the second interpretation is 
is it figuratively talking about the drying up of the Euphrates? Okay. Uh-huh. All right, let's look at those two interpretations. Let's start with the literal interpretation. Now, it says, now when I read this prophecy, uh, I understand that it was this, it says the sixth angel poured out his vowel upon the great Euphrates and the waters dried up. Okay, now when we consider this prophecy in the context of Revelation 16, uh, this is the sixth vow, but I understand that even though it's a sixth vow or a plague or something, that it didn't really take place until the seventh plague. Okay, all right, so. If we're talking about the drying up of the Euphrates, are we saying literally that the river will be dried up in a certain geographical location? I believe Euphrates was up and around Iran somewhere up in that country. Okay. It said, and the waters thereof was dried up. Now, what are the waters? Are they literal waters that when they dried up, that the kings could now come in uh, the kings of the east may come, might be prepared to come in. See, a lot of times when uh, one nation was trying to overcome another nation and the other nation had a, 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 a river or a bed of water that would separate them, they couldn't get the enemy until they could curtail the water. And so when the, when, when the waters could be curtailed and went another way or dried up, then the opposing forces could come down through where the water once was because they're on dry land and when they come up they can overcome their enemy okay now if you look at that literally liter- literally then what we're looking at is this we're looking at a geographical location where actually the euphrates river was actually a part of okay so if that is true that means that once it's dried up then who are the kings are you talking about are you talking about the kings of the east that will come in, and when they come in, they will come through the dry path where the Euphrates has dried up, and they would overcome their enemy? That's that's one interpretation. But if we look at it figuratively, then who or what was the the river Euphrates? Now, according to the uh, according to the Bible, that when you had multitudes, people, and nations, it was represented by water. You see, that was represented by water. Water represented multitudes, nation, and kindreds of people. So are you saying that when you look at this prophecy and you read it in verse 12 of the 16th chapter of Revelation, and the sixth angel poured out his vow upon the Euphrates, is saying that he is a Euphrates representative or the water and it says and the water thereof dried up is the water that he's talking about symbolizing people and that there was a falling away of the people from babylon you see because euphrates river ran by babylon so is they talking about a, a falling away of the people who was worshiping in the beastly system and this beastly system who was teaching contrary to what Elohim wanted to teach. And now the people are coming to a knowledge 
that, wait a minute, a lot of what they're teaching is not correct, and they start falling off and giving support to the Babylonian beast. And as a result, Revelation is saying, and the waters, which are the people, begin to fall away from the church, that the way of the kings of the east. Now, we know that when Yeshua will come, the Bible says, as the lightning shining from the east unto the west, so shall be the coming of the Son of Man. So the Son of Man is a king, and he'll have other kings with him coming from the east. So are we saying figuratively that the way of the kings of the east might be prepared? Because when Elohim comes and the people fall away, who are supposed to be the Euphrates River, and then when he comes, he's going to come down and he's going to fight the battle of Armageddon. Because I believe in this chapter, that's what it's talking about, the Battle of Armageddon. All right. So when you look at the figurative view and the literal view, some of them, they coincide. They coincide. But then there are other areas that are critical that you have to look at. So sometimes to get a more explicit and a, and a broader understanding of this text, you have to consider the context in which it is coming out of so that you can be able to see properly what it's talking about, because in the few minutes that we have, we cannot exhaustively give a full explanation of this text, but there is the figurative view and there's the literal view. One is talking uh, literally and one other talking figuratively. And as you study it, then we have to come to the conclusion of, do these views merge together or are they different views? In many instances, they do merge together, and in some, they do not. Right, and uh, next question we have, uh, Numbers 29.1, regarding the Feast of Trumpets. It says, you shall do no customary work. What is customary work? Is it different from you shall do no work in Exodus 20.10? Okay, so what else about the work? All right, let's look at that. Uh, let me see, Exodus, you say Exodus 21? 9-1. Exodus 29, let's see. Mm. No, I mean, I'm sorry, Numbers 29-1. Okay. Okay, now, Numbers 29-1 says, and in the seventh month, on the first day of the month, ye shall have an holy congregation. Ye shall do no survival work. It is a day of blowing of trumpets unto you. Okay. And that was Exodus 20, verse what? Uh, Exodus 20, 10. 20, Okay. And Exodus 20, 10 says, but the seventh day is the Shabbat of Yah, thy Elohim, in it thou shalt not do any work. Okay, one is saying survival work and, and another is saying any work. Okay, now, uh, the difference being is in 29 it saying don't do any survival work. Okay, let's look at that first. Now, what, what is survival work? Now, survival work is basically, as I understand it, uh, it, is, it is common labor that you do every day. Okay, survival work. Okay, you might be a typist or a secretary. You might be a person that uh, work in manual labor. You might be a mechanic. You might be a nurse or a doctor, okay? Uh, even though some of these professions, you know, uh, like in the medical field, it is permissible to do 
you know, save life that then, you know, to destroy. So, but but for the main person, uh, survival work is basically work that you do every day. You know, yeah, you may be a, a, a housekeeper or mm -hmm. you, you may not work, but you work around the house or something. In other words, what is your general occupation of what you do to make a living or to uh, continue to maintain your lifestyle? That's survival work. Yeah, all, all that's survival. Okay. You know, that's, that's survival. Okay. So when it comes to the Feast of Trumpets, he said, you, you don't need to be around his sweeping and washing clothes and doing all that. That's, that's survival work. You don't do that. Because uh -huh. so notice what it says. It says, ye shall have a holy comfort a holy convocation, ye shall do no survival work. In other words, that's that's wiping out, in my estimation, washing dishes, uh, sweeping and mopping floors, washing clothes, cooking, and, and all of that. He said no survival work. So when you say no survival work, you're talking about all of the general work that you bas basically do during the week. He said none of that. But now when it comes to Exodus chapter 20 and verse 10, it says that thou shalt not do any work. Okay, now, if it says don't do any work, isn't that the same as no survival work? To me, it's the same thing. No working, and when you look at, you uh, said do no survival work. No survival work in any work to me, that, that's that's basically the same thing, that he doesn't want you on the Sabbath day to do any work, okay? And he points out who should not do any work. He said, nor thy son, nor thy daughter, nor thy manservant, nor thy maidservant, nor thy cattle, or the stranger that is within thy gate. So he, he said, not only do I tell you not to do it, but I'm telling you who was not to do it. So he pinpoints it that you should not do any work. Now, any means... Any work that you're doing during a week should not be done. Okay. The only work that should be done on the Sabbath day is the spiritual work that you're doing. You may visit the sick, you may pray, you may do stuff like that. That those type of works is okay. You may give Bible studies, you may go out in nature. Those those are okay. But you should not be engaged in any work that you commonly do to make a living or to maintain something that you do during the week. So in many, in some instances, it may be a little different, but in most instances, any work and no survival work is basically the same. That only annual feasts, when he says don't do no survival work, he's basically saying it is almost like keeping the, keeping the Sabbath. Let me, let, me, let me use one more text to kind of let us turn to Leviticus 23. I'm going to try to verify something here. Okay, let's turn to Leviticus 23. Okay. And in 23rd uh, chapter uh, uh, of, of, Lydic, uh, of verse 23. Okay. Uh, let, let, uh, let's look at uh, verse... Uh, well, we can start with verse 23. Leviticus 23, 23 says... And Yah spake unto Moses, saying, Speak unto the children of Israel. In the seventh month, in the first day of the month, ye shall have a Shabbat. Now notice that. He said, you should have a Shabbat. So he's looking at the uh, Feast of the Trumpets on the first day of the seventh month 
as a Sabbath. Now, he had already told you in Exodus 20 that you should not do any work, okay? Okay. Mm -hmm. He said, and you shall keep a Sabbath, a memorial of blowing trumpets and holy convocation, and you shall do no servile work therein, but ye shall offer an offering made by fire unto Yahuwah. Okay, now, here we see that in Numbers, it talks about servile work for the day of uh, for the day of, uh, of trumpets, and Leviticus talks about doing don't doing any work on 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 the Sabbath. Okay, but the thing that we notice here in these verses, it it points out two things. Number one, it points out the seventh month and the first day, right, which is the Feast of Trumpets. And then he said, shall ye have a Sabbath? So it's pointing out both the seventh month on the first day was holy and also the Sabbath, which is holy. And he is saying for the Sabbath and the first day of the week, no survival work is to be done. So Exodus covers the weekly, but here in this text, it covers the weekly and the annual that no survival work should be done. All right, and we have a few more questions. Uh, Shabbat Shalom, family. Greetings in the name of the Heavenly Father, Yahuwah, and His precious Son, Yahusha HaMashiach. I just want to let you know that I am so grateful for the science of the covenant ministry and for what Yah continues to put on your hearts to minister to all of us in the Mishpachah. Todah Rabbah. Uh, thank you very much. I actually have a couple of questions about what we were discussing last week concerning training of children and young people in faith. Uh, question one, what does the pastor think is the best way to go about things when you've raised all your children up in faith and now that they've become adolescents, they have swayed from what they have been taught? Okay, uh Let's let's look at it from this standpoint. Uh, you know, at best, at best, we parents we do make mistakes. Let's just recognize that. Uh, but we're not confident in the fact that we made mistakes. But we're confident in the fact that I think most parents did the best they could in raising raising their children. Okay, uh, and in doing so, when children grow. They develop minds of their own. You know, they become independent to our, ours. When they're growing up, they ask a certain question, we give them answers. But as they begin to experience life, they may not see as we see once they get older. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, what we have to understand is that there is a point in time that our children will be making decisions based upon what they want and not what we taught. They may know the truth, but they may make the decision that they want to depart. Now, what I'm about to say uh, uh, is not what, uh, what is not that I'm trying to put blame on anybody, what I'm about to say, but here's, here's, here's what I'm saying. 
many of us, when we grow up, and I mean, when our children grow up, uh, they may have seen things in our lives that were not as we taught. You know, I know I came up in a family and and we were told not not to smoke. But at the same time, our parents were smoking, you know. <laughs> so, I mean, we sin more what you do than what you're telling. And so I think my brothers, at least one of them, he picked up smoking. I tried it, but I, I, I never pursued it. I just left it alone. I, I just puffed and I, maybe by one time, I, I, you know, I just didn't feel that I could take smoke into my body. And so I, I never bothered with it, even though a lot of my friends, they smoke, but I didn't, you know. But what I'm saying is, uh, what you are looking at is they're saying, <clears throat> this is what you said, but this is not what you did. Okay, now, I want you to keep that in mind. Keep that in mind. You're imperfect parents, but yet you were teaching your children right. That's good. That's still good. Because at least you were teaching them right, even though you weren't doing it. Okay, now, keep this in mind. Elohim made two perfect beings, Adam and Eve. They were perfect. And their children want to stay. So... What would you think if we are imperfect and our children go astray? If somebody put somebody, I'm not blaming Elohim for it. I'm, I'm just saying he had two perfect children and they still went astray. Mm. And here we are imperfect and our children go astray and we weren't worried about uh, what did we do? Well, we are sinful and that's what happened. Okay, now let us say that in coming up, you did actually live what you were teaching them. And they saw by your word and by what you did that it was, you know, you really live by that. But they got to a point that they say, well, you know, my parents, they really taught me well. And, and they gave me good examples, but I want to, I want to taste the world for myself. Okay. All right. Now here's, here's, here's what I'm suggesting. Uh, let us turn, let us turn to the book of Job. Let me see. Well, I'll turn to the book of Job here. Let me see where well, Job here. All right. Let me see. Okay, let me see if I can find that passage. Let me see. Uh, uh, okay, let us turn to the book of Job. And uh, let me see. Uh, uh, I uh, I want to let me see here. Uh, all right, let's turn Book of Job, the second chapter. I want to look at verse one. He said, "By by Bible says is." Again, there was a day when the sons of Elohim came to present themselves before uh, Yah, and Satan came among them to present himself before Yah. Okay. All right. So, in other words, there was a council, and Satan came among that council, 
And one of the things he noticed uh, that Elohim was asking him, have you considered my servant Job? And he said, yeah. And he challenged Job, I mean, challenged Elohim to say, well, the only reason why Job is serving you is because you blessed him. Okay. Now, the thing about that is, is that uh, Job had a family. Okay. And Job was serving out of the pureness of his heart, but Satan was looking at him saying, well, if you take that hedge from around Job, Job curse you. But here, here's the point that I want to bring out. That Job was a family man. And, and, and when we read in Job chapter 1 and verse 13, notice what it said. It said, and there was a day when the sons and his daughters were eating and drinking wine in their eldest brother's house. Okay. Now, a lot of times when Job's children, they would have a birthday, the daughters and the sons, they would, they, they would get together. And even Job said, Job said, when I go and pray, I'm going to offer sacrifice because my sons or my family, my children, they may have sinned. Now, sometimes Job didn't know whether they sinned or not. But Job says, when I offer the sacrifice, then I'm going to offer sacrifice for them. So what am I saying? I'm saying that when we have families, sometimes we may have been a poor example and sometimes we may have been a good example. But you got to keep those children on the altar at all times. When you pray day and night, you got to keep them children on the altar because you know what's in them. They know it, but they're trying to experience the world. And if you continue to pray and if you the Bible says you contend with me and I contend with you. I'm going to save those children. So it's up to us that when they go astray, that's their mind. At a point, we got to let them go. Like the prodigal son said, if you want your inheritance now, I'm going to give it to you. And he had to let that son go because he knew he would have been most miserable if he had stayed home and couldn't do what he wanted to do. He would have still been miserable. So his father said, you know, he didn't want him to go. He had to let him go. But that father prayed and prayed until he came back home. So what I'm saying, number one, if our children go astray, what do we do? We pray, okay? And number two, what, what do we do? We try to, when we do talk to them, we have to make it not a monologue that we preach to them, but we have to make it a, a dialogue that, we talk to one another. Don't talk past one another and over one another, but let's talk to one another. They see it one way, you see it another. And, and when you pray, you're praying for the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to intervene and to be able to help them to see by dialogue what's the right course. And sometimes through that dialogue, you may say something that they say, well, you know, I hadn't really considered that. Okay, so when you pray and then you uh, you had that uh, dialogue, then the third thing I would say is that as you study your Bible, try to look for examples. See, a lot of people, when they study their Bible, they, they just study for a lesson. But the Bible is a, a book of life. Whatever you are going through, Somewhere in the book of Psalms or somewhere in the other parts of the Bible, 
your situation is there and you got to ask Elohim, could you take me to a situation that's dealing with what I'm dealing with to be able to give me some insight into that problem? It may not be the exact thing, but it can give you some principles of how you can go, go about dealing with the children that you feel have gone astray. So if you pray, you dialogue, and you read your Bible for the examples, I think Elohim is most likely going to pull those children back to the fold, and pretty soon you will be rejoicing because they have come back. So that's what I would say at this particular point. Okay, and the next question we have was, what do we say to them when, because some of the pain and hurt they suffered from in the church, they have decided to stray and even question if Yah even exists? Okay, well, uh, here's, here's what, well, let me put it this way. A lot of times it's not what you say, but it's what you listen to. In other words, are they telling you because they had a lot of pain and hurt in the church, uh, they don't want Elohim? Or are they really expressing their pain and hurt of things that they, they have experienced? Okay. Because you know and I know, if anybody was pain and hurt, it was Yeshua. Matter of fact, they even nailed him to a cross. Okay. But the point that I'm trying to get at is uh, we do run into difficult experiences and painful situations in groups that we're in. This is why the Bible says in the book of, uh, I think it was Zephaniah, that uh, Yeshua, he was wounded in the house of a friend. Okay. So a lot of hostility and stuff that even Yeshua experienced was among his own people. Matter of fact, his own people, the one that sold him out. Okay. So what I'm saying is sometimes it's not so much what you say. It may be sitting down and just listening to their pain. You got to listen to people. And a lot of time when people telling you about your pain, you don't need to jump up and say, well, uh, 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 I was hurt in the church and a lot of us was hurt, but we didn't leave the church. No, that ain't what they're talking about. That's your experience. What they're they, they trying to express to you is their pain. Listen to their, listen to their pain. And as they talk to you about their pain, then they are letting a lot out of them that has been pinned up because somebody had to listen to them to be able to help them to find where they were. And sometimes when they can express it and talk about it, a lot of times they can solve their own problems. You know, it's not the fact that, uh, 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 we have to always have solutions to everybody's problem. You don't. I don't have the solution to everybody's problem. But what I do have is the fact that I can look to my Heavenly Father and I can pray to Him and I can ask Him, what does this person need? And when I can see a person talking to me and talking about how much they've been hurt and who has hurt them and and how they have been misused in, 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 in the church, then I feel what that person needs is a healing. They need to heal from that. Okay. And so I think that one of the best ways to, way to help a person to heal <clears throat> is just like a surgeon. If a surgeon cuts you open and take out the disease and then he close you up, then you start healing. 
but in a conversation with a person who has been hurting, the surgery is to let them talk it out. And as they talk it out, that is the surgery to bring their hurt out of their, their pain. And as you listen to them, as they talk about all that hurt, then I think they're on a the process of healing. But sometimes that it doesn't come overnight. It may come over a number of sessions. Because when people get angry about what had happened to them in church and how people have treated them, and, and, and believe me, you got some saints that are, that are mean. They would say things that really hurt you. I mean, sometimes you, I mean, you made us experience it. Sometimes you experience more, more hell in the church than you do with people outside the church. You got to know that. But after they get through talking about it and getting out of the system, they're on the way to healing. So I would say, hang in there with them. Don't give them up. Hang in there with them. And if and, and, and if they get to the place that you can really talk, just ask the person, your child or something, can we pray about it? You know, don't try to force it. It'll come natural. But listen to their pain. Don't try to talk over it. Don't talk, try to talk around it. Accept what they are telling you so you can better be able to deal with it. And the next question is, they also ask if he does exist. Then why would he let so many evil things go on? How can we get these teens and young people, even college age, back into growing in the faith? Well, well uh, some, some, some of these questions uh, that you're asking are very relevant for today, and maybe they need to be full of discourses on, on, on these things, because by the, by the same token that you are saying that a lot of our young people may not believe that there is an Elohim or a God, and they are going astray. I've seen where on college campuses and different places, young people are taking control, and they are even saying some of the stuff that they are teaching in the classroom in some of these universities that go against the principles of the Bible, they're not accepting. You know, they are bold enough to stand up and, and deal with that. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, there are those who have succumbed to the fact that with all of the affliction and the difficulties that are going on in the world, that, you know, is that really a true Elohim? And, and they have to grapple with those particular problems. So what I'm saying is, I don't think what I say here is that one shoe fits all. You can't paint everybody with a broad, uh, paintbrush because they are atheists who may be atheists because they're angry because something happened in their life that they felt that Elohim should have stepped in and, and done something about it. And then there are those who uh, they, 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 they may feel that there is no God because when you look at all these hurricanes and and, 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 and tornadoes that is wiping off different civilizations. You go over to Hawaii and, and the different places and, and, and Hurricane Lee and all of this stuff that is going on in the world. How can he allow that? And they look at that and, and they, they wonder, is there a God? Well, it may cause some questions, but let's keep in mind that Elohim already said that this stuff is going to exist in prophecy. Why does it exist? It exists because Man has gone against the laws that Elohim has established on this earth. And so therefore, there will be catastrophes. You can't deny that. So once we understand that there are certain things that are going to transpire in this world, then 
just as Yeshua would talk to the woman at the well, when we talk to people, this is why we have to be prayed up when we go outside of the house. That Elohim, I might run into situation. Elohim in my own family, I'm dealing with situation. Elohim, I'm looking at the young people. They go on astray and they don't believe in Elohim. You got to be prayed up enough to know that the power of the Holy Spirit, that when you meet these people, just like Yeshua met the woman at the well and knew what her situation was with the men that she had been in, that he can give you the wisdom. Because what is happening today is that we got too much dependency upon professional people. We feel that in order for you to answer the question, you got to go to the psychologist psychologist. You got to go to the counselor. You got to go to the therapist. You do not. As a Christian believer, the power of the Holy Spirit is waiting to use you because you are the one that's confronting the situation. And what you're telling me, I might not be able to deal with it because I'm not in that situation. But he has equipped you with the power of the Holy Spirit to deal with situations that you may come across and you may not know what to do. But the Holy Spirit know that you have read this. He know that you have experienced this. So when you get to talking to that person, he can give you thoughts and ideas that on the, on the spot, you can be able to answer that person of, of what they are dealing with. And that's what the Holy Spirit is waiting to do, not to just to use the leaders, but to use every believer that is in his church or in his assembly, that if I use the Holy Spirit, I can be able to take that individual and to be able to talk and to be able to come to the conclusion that is needed. But we must allow the Holy Spirit to do that for us and to believe that he has given gifts to the church. And all of the gifts in the church has not been given to the leaders. It's given, it, it, those gifts are given to the laity as well. Sometimes the laity can do a better job in answering a question than some of the leaders. Because a lot of the leaders are not involved in maybe what you're involved in. This is why it got so many gifts in the church. So pray to Elohim to give you the wisdom through the power of the Holy Spirit to be able to interpret the scriptures and to interpret the life situations of what you deal with so you can give the appropriate answer. We don't have to always look to professional people to do that. We can do that ourselves. Yeah, you know, um, just reading the questions, um, I've been there where these kids are at, uh, you know, being raised in the church and seeing many other things that I've seen, especially being a pastor kid, you know, we, we've, um, I've seen a lot of things and it's just like you said, people would give you more hell in the church than probably out in the streets. And, you know, a lot of times you internalize that and it's hurting and you, you do ask, uh, if there is a higher power, why are you going through this? Why are you letting this stuff happen? And like I said, I was going through that at one time. I was bitter. I was angry. I started even to believe that there wasn't a higher power, you know, Yahuwah. But I think through prayers of the family consistently, when my heart was a stone, Yah kept chipping away. And at mm. some point in time, as he kept chipping away, he kept showing me different things. And one thing I understood that, and it's just like you said, in this world with sin, you're always going to go through something. Nobody is immune to a life of, of, of free of no strife. As long as the adversary is here, he's going to attack you any way he can. But as Yah keeps working on you 
and working on you, uh, you start to see a change. You start to see in the midst of turmoil, Yahweh show you himself that he is there for you and he's well helping you. And I've seen it. You know, he's taken me from a heart of stone to a heart of flesh and all. So I just say that it may be, it may take a little time, but I think at some point y'all will get you, get someone somewhere and reveal himself to you. And that you will see at some point that he is a loving Elohim and everything. Okay. Well, we encourage you to continue to ask questions, send in your comments and everything. Uh, we look for you to come back here tomorrow at 3 p.m. as we celebrate the Feast of Trumpets uh, tomorrow at 3 p.m. So, Pastor, with that, can you uh, take us to the throne in prayer as we get ready to close out this podcast for this week? I love it, Father. We thank you for the engagement that we've had. And as we've studied you out of the word about the kingdoms on this world before Adam was here, did you give us a clear understanding that as we move forward to the Sabbath, as it closes, that we may have gotten all of the blessings you have in store. And as we transition into the young to rule the blowing of the trumpets, Lord, that thou would prepare us to be able to get the blessing that this day has to offer. Thank you for the questions that have come in and for the concerns that the people have had. And may, O oh Heavenly Father, as they continue to look to you, that the power of your Holy Spirit may be able to endorse them and let them know that many of the answers can lie right within their own minds and hearts that as they allow the Holy Spirit to use them as men in days of old who were common men allow the Holy Spirit to use them, they were able to deal with the hard questions of life. So we ask that the power of the Holy Spirit may continue just to be with us and teach us how to pray because prayer is the greatest tool that we have in fighting the enemy. And he knows that when we pray that we are getting in touch with you. This is why he don't want us to pray because if we don't get in touch with you, then we won't get your answer. So help us to keep on praying. And we know that he acts up when we pray. We know that when we start keeping your festival days, he's acts up. And we know that he's going to act up, but we're going to hold on to you anyhow. And then when we come out on the other side, like Daniel in the lion's den and the Hebrew worthies in the fiery furnace, when we come out, we'll know that a lot of things we went through, but you went through it with us. But a lot of things that if we don't go through it, we don't know that you can be able to give us the answer, but because we have gone through it, and as my son has said, he has gone through it, and you brought him out. We believe that you can bring the rest of the children out. And when they come out, we'll have a great rejoicing. Just like the lady who had the lost coin, she found it, and she was glad. The man who had the lost sheep, he found it, and he was glad. And the prodigal son who lost his son, and when he came back home, he was glad. So we know that you have the answer, and the answer is found within the power of your Holy Spirit to be able to use us individually to do what is needed. And when you have done for us that which we ask, we give your name the praise, the honor, and the glory, majesty, dominion, power, and all of the thanks for your wonderful blessings. So bless us and meet with us again tomorrow at 3 p.m. so that we can discuss about the young to rule, the blowing of the trumpets. 
in Yeshua's name. We do ask it, and for his dear sake, we do pray. Amen. Amen. And amen. Amen. Uh, I just want to let you know, we, I guess we are getting a little bit more popular, and they're checking our videos, this platform. So if there's any point in time that we may set up a stream and we may be blocked or whatever, uh, just make a note. Always check our website if that was to happen. I'm just letting you know, we don't know certain things was going on right now. But if indeed uh, we, you see that our channel, something issues have to start with our channel, we will have information on psychov.com. So you can go there as, uh, you know, in the future, if something was to happen, you know, we'll have an alternative where we would stream and everything else. Also, before you go, we are not charging anything for this ministry. If you could just do one thing for us. If you're not subscribed, hit the subscribe button. And please like the video. It helps a whole lot. That is our podcast for this week. If you have any questions or comments, please feel free to email us at scienceofthecovenant at gmail.com. And the king stood in his place and made a covenant before Yahuwah to walk after Yahuwah and to keep his commandments and his testimonies and his statutes with all his heart and with all his soul to perform the words of the covenant which are written in this book. 2 Chronicles 34, one. Until tomorrow at 3 p.m. Shalom. Join us live as we celebrate the fall feast, beginning with the Feast of Trumpets on September the 17th at 3 p.m. Then the Day of Atonement on September the 26th at 3 p.m. The beginning of the Feast of Tabernacles, October the 1st, at 3 p.m. and the closing of Feast of Tabernacles October the 8th at 3 p.m. We look forward to you joining us. Shalom.